All right, good morning. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. If, um, if I don't know you, um, we are glad um, you are here this morning. Um, today will officially mark halfway through the book of Matthew. Halfway there. Only 14 more chapters left to go. We'll be out sometime by 2025. Um, so, um, I'm so excited coming uh, next month. My bald brother over here is going to uh, jump into that relationship series. I am so stoked for that. Come back next week for the next four weeks um, so you can be a part of that. But I have a lot of text to cover today. We are going to cover the entire chapter. Um, so I'm going to cut the small talk and jump right in, okay? So I hope you're ready. Matthew chapter 14, we're really going to dive into verses 13 going forward, but I want to, I want to read uh, verses 1 through 12 for us just so we, can, so we can see where we're at contextually. So verses 1 through 12 say this, Matthew chapter 14 will be on the screen as well. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Thank uh, so Matthew's writing, looking back, okay? So, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodotus, Her- Herodotus, I'm sorry, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herod- Heroditus, I can't say that name for some reason, danced before the company to please Herod, which is disgusting in and of itself. You just need to go study that. Uh, it's a twisted family tree there. Um, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths, and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. And so, to get us up to where we are, Troy, last week, we've, or the past several weeks, we've been walking through parables. Jesus has been teaching in parables. And Jesus has been showing what saving belief through repentance and that damnation through unbelief can coexist in the world, okay? And so some would accept this and others would reject it. That's how he ended last week. And so Herod rejects and has John the Baptist put to death. And that kind of catches us up to verse 13 where we're going to dive into this morning. And so I want, in this text that we're going to look at, I want you to think about this. The incarnation. Jesus is 100% God and yet 100% human. Fully God, yet fully human. And we're going to see Jesus' humanity and his deity on display this morning. And so the incarnation, it's a really, it's a bewildering thought to think about. 100% God, and yet 100% man. Jesus is human. Sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my, rent, my mind around the fact that, as, uh, ha, that Jesus has ascended bodily into heaven. And that this person to whom I pray, whom I've never seen eye to eye, whom I've never heard audibly, who who I've never touched, is human. Think about it. Jesus was in his mother's womb for nine months. He grew up a little boy, and like all boys, I'm sure he ran. Like if you have a little boy in here, I'm sure he ran. I'm sure he jumped on stuff. I'm sure he fell. I'm sure he scraped his knees at some point. Um, He was a boy who grew up physically. He grew up mentally. and, And he... Perhaps in some incomprehensible way, he, 
he, he did that spiritually as well. So Jesus learned to walk, he learned to talk, he learned to read, he learned to write, he learned to pray. He was a human baby and a boy, and of course, he was a man as well. He grew up to be a man, and we don't know his physical attributes, but from the gospel we know, from the gospels we know that he walked, he sat, he sailed, he got hungry. We learned that in Mark chapter 11. We know that he got thirsty, John chapter 19. We know that he felt tired in John chapter 4. We know that he slept, pretty human thing to do, in uh, Mark chapter 4. We know that he sang, that he spoke, and that he prayed, Hebrews chapter 5. We know that he grieved, and we know that he wept in John chapter 11. And he did the most ultimate human thing, he died in John 27. So Jesus is human. He was a human. The amazing thing about this first miracle, which we're going to get to in a minute, this feeding of 20,000 plus people with a couple of fish and a few pieces of bread, is that Jesus is the flexing of Jesus' divinity in these miracles, in this miracle, is sandwiched in the middle of his humanity. It begins and it ends with a very human Jesus, fully divine yet fully human. And I want you to see that because I think you can read this at face value and you can miss it. Look with me at the first thing I want you to see. Silence and solitude are a grace and vital in communion, and vital in communion with our Heavenly Father. Verses 13 and 14, look with me. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Okay, skip ahead with me to verse 23. We're going to come back to the miracle. The, the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 is sandwiched in there. So Jesus does the miracle and look with me in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Don't miss that. We see a very human Jesus here. So Jesus hears the news of his cousin John being beheaded and he desires to get away to go to silence and solitude for communion with God the Father, to linger with him in prayer. And so that word desolate, in the Greek it's the word eremon, which means desert or wilderness. So he goes away where there's nobody around, there's no people, is where he's seeking to go to. We're not exactly sure where he went, like, geographically is probably somewhere on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But we do know, however, what happens when he gets there. So Jesus learns about his cousin being beheaded. He seeks to get away to linger with the Lord in silence and solitude. He gets to the other shore, gets in the boat, goes to the other shore, and what's waiting on him? The Jewish paparazzi, right? Like, they're, they're, they're waiting on him. They're, they want to they be with him. He's just trying to get away, and he arrives, and this crowd is there, and it kills his silence and solitude, or at least paused it for a minute. And so Jesus has great compassion and works a major miracle that we're about to look at. But, but look with me in verse 22. It says, immediately after the miracle, he made the disciples go to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So Jesus tried to get into the, follow with me, Jesus tried to get into the boat to go get to silent and solitude, okay? That plan didn't work. So plan B was he was going to put his disciples in a boat and send them off and said, I'll see you on the other side. He doesn't have transportation. We'll get to that in a minute. But then he proceeds to dismiss the crowd and he makes his way up on the mountain to pray by himself. So Jesus seeks silence and solitude. The spiritual discipline of silence and solitude, if I'm honest with you, is kind of weird for me. 
it's kind of crazy to think about. Like, I live in the middle of downtown Tuscaloosa, I mean, in downtown Northport. And where I live, there's a train, like, in our backyard. So I all the time have noise. There's, all, there's either a train, there's either kids on a basketball court that's literally two feet out my back door. There's kids yelling. There's it's always noise. I always have noise. And we see Jesus get away from the noise, get away from the distractions. And he saw it as vital He saw this as vital in his humanity. This is one of the multiple times that we see Jesus go off in silence and solitude to commune with his heavenly father. What was on Jesus' mind when he went away? We don't actually know, but we can speculate. We can do a biblical speculation. So I think as well as some other commentators think he was thinking about John's death. I think he was thinking about his cousin who had just been beheaded. Um, And I think he went to grieve. But not only to grieve, which is a very human thing to do, right? But I think he was also thinking of John's death in light of his own impending death. Keep in mind, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows the will of the Father. This isn't catching him off guard. And John's death was a foreshadow of Jesus' passion narrative. Like John, Jesus is going to be innocently put to death by the political powers that be. It was Herod for John the Baptist. It'll be Pilate for Jesus. So follow with me. I think, I think he went to grieve, but I think he's thinking about all this. And Jesus knew it was God's will for him. We learned that in Isaiah 53, the will of the Father to crush your son. Jesus knows this. I think he was thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane. I think he was thinking about the lashes. I think he was thinking about the crown of thorns. I think he was thinking about the painful walk of the Via Della Rosa. I think he was thinking about the nails. I think he was thinking about the thirst, the laughter, the rejection, the loneliness, the bearing of our sin. I think that's what he was thinking about. And I think up on that mountain, Jesus saw another mountain coming. A mountain that he was going to have to walk, that was getting closer and closer to him. A mountain where he would pour himself out for humanity. So silence and solitude was vital for Jesus. He sought communion away from distraction to be with God the Father. What does this mean for us? We are limited beings. We are human. To be human is to, be, is to have limitation. That's what it means to be human. We have physical limitations, we have mental limitations, we have emotional limitations, just to name a few. But these limitations are a grace in and of themselves. Why? Because they show us our dependency on someone greater than ourself. And when we seek silence and we seek solitude, we are seeking communion with the one who is not bound by limitations. That's that's the whole point of it. We get to lean into him. We get to listen to him. We get to rest and we get to be reminded of who we are in Christ. We need this church. We need the discipline of silence and solitude. We are inundated with noise. We are inundated with distraction. And I think we can see in Jesus, in his humanity, he saw it as vital. And if it's vital for Jesus, I'm going to say it's pretty vital for us. Our limitations puts the loving kindness of God on display. His power is made perfect in our weaknesses. And so I'm going to make a shift. I just wanted y'all to see that because I think it's huge. Um, We're going to make a shift and we're going to see in, in these two miracles, Jesus work out two gracious acts of compassion in light of two um, inconsistent unbeliefs. Okay. So, Act 1, we're going to see in verses 14 through 21, Jesus is gracious in the face of need. Look with me in verses 14 through 21. It says this. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now, 
When it was evening, the disciples had come to him and said, This place is desolate, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go into the villages. Send the crowds away and send them into the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, But Jesus, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. So Jesus tries to seek silence and solitude, and his silence is crashed by a crowd. And what is his immediate reaction? Is he annoyed that his quiet time got interrupted? Like, bro, do you even know who I am? Like, I've got to go be with my father. Does he do that? No, he doesn't. He didn't blow him off. He had compassion on him. Don't miss that. That's not how I would react in this situation. I'm just being real. But the beautiful thing we see is compassion at the heart of the good shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He cares for his sheep when the sheep need care. And so Jesus was full of both spiritual compassion that we've been looking at, speaking the gospel over people through words, through parables, but he also had a physical compassion, healing of the sick and filling up their stomachs. He demonstrates not just an attitude of compassion, but acts of compassion. Don't miss that. It's not just an attitude, but it's acts. And this is what Christians are to be marked by, something that, we can be, that can be seen all throughout the history of the church. An attitude of compassion accompanied by actions of compassion. Our churches are, are, are Christian nonprofits, and your as-you-go daily Christian lives should be marked by these things. Not just an attitude of compassion, but actions of compassion. We should follow in Christ's footsteps. Look around at the world today. Look at the people who are sick. Look at the people who are hurting. Look at the places that are, are, that, that are ravaged. Who do you see on the front lines? You see Christians there. Just an example. Think back to April 27th. It was 2011, whenever the tornado ravaged through Tuscaloosa. I remember I was in college. I remember the, when it ravaged through and on the news. The next day, my social media was inundated with believers Pouring out their time, their energy, their efforts, and their resources to pour into these communities that were ravaged. I saw people gathered at Rosedale Baptist Church to go and to love on the people in that community that were ravaged. I saw people all, people all throughout from different churches going off of Hargrove and into Holt to go assist people. To love on people, not just an attitude of compassion, but acts of compassion. I see it in our church planning network. I see it through Acts 29. I see churches being planted in unreached areas. I see, I see um, churches in hard places, in rural places being planted. I see mission trips being formed like by coal to Nicaragua or Honduras or wherever it is to go love on those people there. Not just an attitude of compassion, but actions of compassion. I could go on and on and on and on and I could look at even a smaller scenario of just in our day-to-day rhythms of giving up of a, a closer park to the door so that someone else doesn't have to walk as far, man. Not just attitude of compassion, but acts of compassion. Jesus cared about the physical needs of people. He didn't give out gospel tracts on how to get in touch with God. Here we see Him feed people. We see Him heal people. Compassion of Christ is to be the compassion of the church. But this miracle isn't just here to serve as a motivation for Christian charity. 
there is a much bigger reason. This is only one of two miracles. One of two miracles listed in all four Gospels, the other being the resurrection. So what's so important about it? What's the point? Is it that Jesus is just a really nice guy? Is it that Jesus shows us that we should share our food? Is it that Jesus shows us that we should just put people first in our lives? Is that the point? No. The point is his power and his magnitude. Jesus' compassionate power as he flexes his power here is a, po- is, is a power that points to his personhood, who Jesus is. Jesus' uh, Jesus's authority over creation points to its creator's identity. Don't miss that. Disciples question his ability. Look at, look at verse 15. It says this. Now, it was evening and the disciples came to him and said, Well, Jesus, this is a desolate place. The day is getting, it's getting kind of late, Jesus. We should probably send the crowds back to their villages so they can eat some dinner. That would probably be a good idea. In Luke's, in Luke's gospel, <laughs> they question him saying, But Jesus, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. We're going to need to go to the store and we're going to need to go buy some more food if we're going to feed all these people. This isn't enough. The disciples had no idea just who and how much they actually had to meet people's needs. It was like the disciples were standing at the base of Niagara Falls and not able to find anything to drink. It's like, I can't see the water, Jesus. I don't don't know what we're going to do. Jesus gets the loaves from the disciples and tells the people to sit down on the grass like a good shepherd. He tells them to sit down. And then he prays for the Father's blessing and then he calls his disciples to do the serving. Catch that. Don't miss that detail. That's so good, man. Jesus didn't give out a single piece of bread. He didn't give out a single piece of bread. He gave the bread to the disciples and they distributed. Jesus was the source, but he used his people as the agents. Jesus meets needs through us, church. He uses us. The Lord alone is 100% sufficient to meet needs in us, but he is graciously allows us and uses us to meet the needs of others. This is huge. Christ followers are an extension of his mercy and his power. And then everyone goes on and they eat until they're satisfied. But then, <laughs> this is, I love this part. He took up 12 baskets of leftovers. Do I think 12 is a coincidence? I definitely don't. I think it was Jesus' way of dabbing on the disciples. You know, I think it was Jesus' way of being like, didn't think I had enough? You each have a, bo- a, a thing to take home with you. You each get a to-go box. Um, but so what, what do we do here? Like, what, like, like, what do we have here? I, I, don't, I don't want you to just hear this miracle and just blow it off because you've heard it 15,000 times. So real people, real places, real events. Okay? So don't miss the magnitude. 5,000 men. And let's just say most of them were married, and let's say they had two-ish kids each. If most of them are married with two-ish kids each, that puts this number not at 5,000, but around 20,000-ish people. Five loaves, two fish, 20,000-ish people. That's a ton of mouths to feed. That's a lot of bread. That's a ton of fish. In other words, as one, I love how one commentator said it. He said, that's a bunch of supernatural, spontaneous regeneration happening here. Like, there's a lot of duplication going on here, okay? And like I said earlier, we see Jesus' humanity at the beginning of this miracle, and we see it at the end of this miracle, but sandwiched right in the middle, man, we see his divinity on full display. He must be the Son of God. Jesus' power reveals who he is. This isn't an illusion. This isn't a magic trick. 
It is a, it's the fully sovereign, all-powerful king flexing his divine identity. David Blaine can't pull this off, man. Siegfried and Royd can't do that. Okay, they can't do that, man. They just, it's not going to happen. You're not going to see a faith healer on TV attempt to give out, to feed 20,000 people with two fish and five pieces of bread. They're gonna, why? Because they're going to look like an idiot. Why? Because they're human with limitations. Supernatural multiplication is what it is. It's supernatural. And this is a visible, tangible, and edible verification of Jesus' identity. Okay? He's not an imposter. He's not a false prophet. This miracle proclaims this is God in the flesh. It's what we just celebrated at Christmas. Emmanuel. God with us. And if you miss that in the miracle, then you completely miss the entire meaning. Yes, Jesus' compassion and feeding the hungry and healing the sick, but that's not it. That's not all that's there. He is the all-powerful, all-sovereign Lord over all creation. He's the one that spun the cosmos into existence. He's the one that placed the stars into the galaxy. He's the one that formed planets. He's the one that changes immaterial into material, non-existent into existing. He's the one that does that. And just in a snap, he takes two fish, five loaves of bread, and feeds 20,000 plus people. He is God. The bread of God from the hand of God. That is the point. And so think back to where we've seen similar instances of food provision in the Old Testament. Uh, The most popular one I think of is Moses in Exodus 16. Remember the Israelites were wandering around in a desolate place? How ironic. And the Lord provided daily for them by giving them manna from heaven. In John's gospel, Jesus explains what he's actually doing here. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus says this in John 6, I assure you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus Jesus isn't simply one who gives stuff that satisfies. He is the one that satisfies. He don't just give us stuff to satisfy. He in himself is what satisfies. He didn't come to merely distribute bread. He came to be our bread. He's the sustaining satisfaction for every one of our souls. So how does this impact us? We're surrounded by people with needs. Where we live and where we work. Spiritual needs, physical needs. Believer, don't think for a second. I don't have, I don't know what I can do about it. I don't have much to offer. Give them Jesus. If you're a believer, you're standing at the base of Niagara Falls. Don't you see there's plenty of water? Look around. Give them Jesus. Jesus is there to meet the deepest needs of our souls and to use our lives as agents of grace. And the beautiful thing about it at the end of Matthew 28, where how we'll end this gospel, is Jesus' promises to be with us every single step of the way. So... So we see God is gracious in the face of need. We see the inconsistent faith and unbelief of the disciples, not thinking that he can do do what he did. We see him have compassion on the people. We see him have compassion on the disciples instead of calling them idiots. Act uh, Act number two, God is gracious in the face of fear. Look with me in verses 22 through 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. 
When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began, began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those on the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And so Matthew follows the miracle of the, re- of the feeding of the 5,000 with Jesus walking on water. Okay, <laughs> And this miracle, he not only shows that he is God, but he audibly he is God. So far we know because of John's account, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, the people are right there, right then, ready to crown him as king. Jesus knows this is not God's will for him, right? Isaiah 53 this is not God's will for him to be crowned as king right now. So he dips out. He tells his disciples to go to the other side. I'll, I'll meet you over there. And he goes up on the mountain. He dismisses the crowd to go commune with God the Father. And while the boat was a long way off from the shore, this storm arose up. And the disciples were trying to row against the wind. Okay, They're getting dominated by the waves. Okay, They're getting the world rocked right now. It says around the fourth watch, which is around 3 to 6 a.m. So think about it. Jesus dismissed them at evening, let's say around like 7 to 9 p.m. It's around 3 to 6 a.m. now. They've been in the storm literally all night, fighting the wind, fighting the sea. And Jesus decides between 3 to 6 a.m. that he's going to defy buoyancy and take a leisure stroll across the sea. Okay? Do you see how Jesus is flexing his divinity in this passage? The disciples are terrified, and rightfully so. I would be terrified too, and I hope you would be. I would think you would be. Um, They probably think they're going to die in the storm. And and keep in mind, these aren't just anybody. Like These are seasoned vets of the Sea of Galilee. Like This isn't their first time on on the Sea of Galilee, okay? And they're making no headway in the storm. They're probably exhausted from rowing all night. And then they look up and they see a figure walking on the water in a raging sea. At this point, I'm cursing, okay? Like, I'm freaking out, like, if I'm I'm in their shoes. And they cry out, it's a ghost. Seems reasonable, right? I mean, they're in the middle of a storm. What else could it be? They knew the principles of buoyancy. They knew if a human got out and walked on water, what's going to happen? Gravity's going to happen. And you're going to sink in that bad boy, okay? Like, that's that's what happens, If you can walk on water, let's talk afterwards. We're about to be really rich and get a building. But but we can't do that, man. Like, we can't do that. And so it's no wonder that they cried out in fear. But look what happens. Defining moment in this passage. Verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So this phrase, take heart, means to be of good courage, to have courage, to not fear. And then this fascinating statement, it is I. Ego, Amy. I think I said that right. 
Ego Amy. And in the Greek, it translates, I am. I am. Where have we seen this before? Jesus cries out, Fear not, I am is here. This is a huge moment. The phrase, the phrase Ego Amy is the name God used for himself in the Old Testament. Follow with me. The most, and most famously, famously at the burning bush. Moses is at the burning bush, right? You remember the story. Moses says, well, who do I tell him sent me? Like, I'm about to go do this task you give me. Who am I supposed to say sent me? And God replies, you tell them I am has sent me to you. Exodus chapter 3. I am ego Amy. So the feeder of the hungry in the preceding story is now the divine Lord who walks on water and he says he is Lord and he shows he is Lord. So now, when I'm sure when these fishermen and, and these disciples who were Jews heard this, they were probably like, say what? He just said he was God. Like what in the world? So, so, so follow with me. This is, this is a big moment. So I want you to think of this miracle afresh and anew. So, so track with me. So one day Jesus decided not to take a boat to the other side, okay? He wasn't opposed to rowing or sailing. We saw that he just did that in verse 13. So he wasn't against that. Um, He wasn't opposed to walking to the other side. We just saw a crowd did that. Like It's not like that couldn't take place. But instead, Jesus on this particular day, and only on this day as far as we know, he chose to walk on water from this side of the sea to the disciples' boat that's getting wrecked by the storm. Why did he do this? Why did Jesus choose to do that? Based on his response, I think he wanted to make something clear before he, went, he would journey into Jerusalem to be the Passover sacrifice for our sins. Think about the grand narrative at play. These are not isolated stories. This, there's a grand narrative at play in the book of Matthew. I think he was thinking about what is to come. He wanted to show these disciples that it was the I am. That it was Emmanuel, God with us. That was going to be the the sacrifice for their sins. I think he wanted to make that crystal clear to them and to us that it was God with us that was going to be on that crucifix. That it was God incarnate who took on flesh to bear all of our sin. Jesus not only steals steals storms, but he also uses storms as a gateway to a greater revelation about himself. To show us who he is. To show us... To show us his identity. And I, man, look at me in verse 28. I love Peter. I love Peter. Like Peter is just, I'm thinking of a better, best way to say it. He just, he goes for it. You know, he doesn't think about it. He just goes for it. Peter calls out to Jesus and recognizing that it was him, he trusted that he could join him on the water in light of Jesus' authority. So he says, Jesus, is that you? If that's you, tell me I can come out there, Peter. Uh, tell me I can come out there and walk on water. And he said, come on. And so he, he does it. He just jumps out. Doesn't think about it. He just does it. Um, he had confidence and courage. Check this. He had confidence and courage in who Jesus was. And so Peter starts walking on the water. And then he felt and he saw and was, re- and was reminded of the f- effects of the storm. And he took his focus off Jesus for just a minute. And what happened? He began to sink. He began to sink. And then Peter cries out with a familiar cry that is familiar to every single believer in this room. Lord, save me. 
So Jesus immediately reached out to save him, and he rebuked him. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? A couple things here. I want you to see something. The Lord saves before he ever scolds. I think a better way to say that probably is the Lord rescues before he rebukes. He didn't sit there in Peter's desperation as he's sinking in the water of this storm, going to drown. Well, Peter, we need to have a conversation about what you've done. We need to sit here and walk through all these things that you've done. No, he doesn't do that, man. He, he reaches out and he grabs him. He, he saves before he scolds. He rescues before he rebukes. I think another thing we need to see here is we need to be careful with this. And we need to especially be careful with this passage and Jesus' response. We can look at Jesus' response and say, he says, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? And we can think, well, if I can just muster up faith, if Peter could have just mustered up a little bit more faith in, a, in, in who Jesus was, if he, could just, if he could just build it up in himself, then he would have been rescued. We got to be careful with that, man. Jesus' response, he isn't saying that we need to muster up more faith, and if we do, then we'll be rescued from, or, or benefit from some certain suffering or issue that we have in life. That is not what he is saying. This makes faith dependent upon us. And we know in Ephesians chapter 2 that faith is not dependent upon us. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace we have been saved through faith. It is not of our own doing. It is the gift of God. Why? So that no man may boast. So faith is a gift. It's not something you can muster up in and of yourself. So a couple things about faith that will be up on the screen. I think these are important things that we need to hit in this passage first thing is this regarding faith what matters most is not the measure of your faith but rather the object Peter is rebuked by Jesus by Jesus for little faith not because of something he couldn't muster up in himself it was because he took the eyes off the object of his faith namely Jesus he had confidence in Jesus. He was looking at Jesus. He was focused on Jesus. I have courage. I can have confidence in the object. And then he looked away. And it, when he looked away, he began to sink. What matters most is not the measure, but the object. Faith is confidence in Christ. And faith is also courage through Christ. And fear that God cannot save and cannot provide is contrary to faith. Why? Because it says that he isn't good and he isn't all-powerful and he isn't all-sovereign and it makes yourself your own self-sovereign savior. So what matters most is the object and not the measure. Number two, the steadfastness of your faith is only as steadfast as the object of your faith. As long as your faith is focused on your circumstances or anyone or anything apart from Jesus, whether it's your husband, whether it's your wife, whether it's your kids, whether it's your, um, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your singleness, whether it's your uh, whatever, suffering, whether it's your, uh, if life is going good, if your faith is in yourself, whatever it is, if it's if apart from Jesus, it really won't matter how much faith you have. Why? Because those things will sooner or later fail you 100% of the time. Because they're not meant to ultimately satisfy you. They're just not. They're good graces, but they're not meant to satisfy you. They're temporary. And when we keep our eyes on Christ, you can rest in his sovereignty. You can rest in his grace. You can rest in his love. You can rest in his mercy. You can, you can rest in his power over all things. And your faith will be constant. Why? Because Christ is constant. He's, he doesn't change. He is everlasting to everlasting. 
This is why the author of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says this. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he is the source and he is the perfecter of our faith. So the source of your faith and the perfecter of your faith is not your husband, it's not your wife, it's not your kids, it's not your singleness, it's not your marriage, it's not your infertility, it's not whatever you're walking through. It's Jesus. And Jesus alone. And so doubt not, fear not, have confidence in Christ, encouraged by the means of Christ. That's what faith is. Romans 8, 28, because we know he works all things together for our good and his glory. And we can rest in that. Look at me in verse 32. Wrap this bad boy up. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Don't miss that miracle. Don't miss that miracle. Jesus steps into this boat and this raging storm that's wrecking these disciples, wrecking this ship, ceases just like that. It's unbelievable. Jesus is the only one who can bring peace in the middle of storms. And there's coming a day when he will bring complete peace to all his people. And then it ends with a response from the disciples. And those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Worship, man. That is the response. That is the response to his divinity. This is a unique thing for these religious Jews to do. Don't miss this. This is a very unique thing for these religious Jews to to say to another human being. These monotheistic Jews call Jesus God's son. This is a huge moment. This is the first time they've said this so far in this gospel. The demons have said love him in Matthew chapter 8, but this is the first time the disciples have said it. They finally say it, and I think it's Matthew's way of finally saying, open up your eyes and see Jesus for who he is, fully human, yet fully God. We'll close it out with this, and Ben, you can make your, be breaking, making your way back up here. Verses 34 through 36 says this, And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gesinerit, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all, to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might not only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many who were touched it were made well. And so, Jesus' fame is starting to spread, and with his fame spreading comes the impending nature of what is the end of Jesus' earthly narrative. All that is coming. It's coming. Literally the next chapter when we jump back into Matthew 15, the Pharisees are going to start to question him. And so, with the fame comes the impending end of the narrative. So what does this call us to do? What does this text call us to do? Believers, let me talk to you first. I think this calls us to respond just like the disciples did, to worship. To see and to savor and to proclaim, truly this is the Son of God. To proclaim that, to believe it, not just in attitude but through acts. Jesus is, Jesus is the one who willingly stepped out of glory into our brokenness. Emmanuel, God with us to redeem and to restore a bunch of doubters, a bunch of skeptics, and a bunch of sinners. To live the sinless life that we could not live and that we would not live. And to die the death, to endure the lashings, to endure the mockery, to endure the beatings, to endure the via della Rosa, to endure the laughter, the spitting, and the, the nastiness that is his crucifixion narrative. 
to take that upon himself in our place. And he did the ultimate miracle that defies all other miracles. He defied gravity and bursted up out of that, that tomb, man. He resurrected, defeating sin, defeating death, and defeating the enemy. And now he rules and he reigns as Lord. And this is why we pour out our lives for others. This is why we show compassion. This is why we can rest in the middle of chaos. This is why we can have joy in our sufferings because he is king. And we can come to the table and we can eat and we can drink and we can be reminded of who he is. Fully man, yet fully God. Crushed for us. An unbeliever. If there's an unbeliever in this room. I plead with you that the Holy Spirit is drawing you this morning, that you've come face to face with your sin and your need for King Jesus, that you would cry out like Peter and like every single believer that is in this room, Lord, save me. And based on this text and on Romans chapter 10, if you do that, if you repent of your sin, if you turn from your sin, if you rest in his embrace, according to Romans chapter 10, he will save you. He is good and he keeps his promises. Let's pray. King Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity to jump into your gospel. I thank you for your compassion towards doubters, towards skeptics, towards sinners. Lord, I'm prone to doubt your goodness. I'm prone to doubt your power in life and in sufferings and in circumstances. I'm prone to beat my chest when life is good and not look to you. I'm prone to take the object, to take my focus off the object of my faith. But Lord, you are gracious and you are kind and you are a good shepherd who has compassion on his sheep, who goes after his sheep, who rescues his sheep, who makes them lie down in green pastures. You were so good to us. Lord, I pray that there's a unbeliever in this room Lord that you would draw them in that you would show them their need for you that you would reveal to them their depravity and Holy Spirit would you crush them would you let them feel the weight of their sin and surrender to you Lord we love you and we thank you for loving us we pray all these things in Jesus name Amen